Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. Uh, it's good to be with all of you again uh, the, this morning. I want to take us uh, to uh, a new type of passage, a dif- uh, different passage this morning to the book of Revelation. And what I, I want to do that because I want to spend this week and probably next week talking more about the news media. Last week we talked about how we can relate to friends and family and coworkers about issues in the media, especially controversial issues in the media. And of course, with our present crisis, uh, we have had no shortage of controversy and we've seen uh, in many ways the, the, the differing uh, opposing voices in our, uh, in, our, in our news media as they wrestle with uh, how to handle this crisis and so we've, we've taken, over the last number of weeks, we've actually uh, been looking at various uh, passages that help us to, to cope with and to, um, to endure during this crisis, uh, looking at stress, looking at uh, despair, um, and last week looking at specifically how to engage and talk about these issues. And this week, I want to use the book of Revelation to, uh, to actually think more, um, more theologically, more shrewdly about the news media as an institution and the ways that it, uh, it functions within society. So I want to ask the question this morning, how, does, how, how as a Christian should we think about the news media? And I want to do, again, I want to do so using Revelation. Um, and, and Revelation really is, is an overwhelming book if you've ever read it, and there's a lot going on, a lot of moving parts. And so what I will do this morning is uh, quite probably, I'm gonna we'll we'll kind of jump into these uh, into the passage and into these uh, uh, matters that we'll discuss, and we'll probably uh, continue uh, next week uh, in Revelation. So, um, but with that, let's let's jump in. I want to um, just begin by sharing a uh, about a, a study that was done not too long ago. Um, it appeared in the journal International Archives of medicine, International Archives of Medicine. And the, the researchers were out of, uh, out of Germany. Uh, they belonged to what was called the Institute of Diet and Health. And according to this study, people who eat dark chocolate while dieting lose weight more quickly. Isn't that great? Think about this. So if you're dieting, you're trying to lose weight. If you eat dark chocolate, which is, you know, people love uh, chocolate, you'll actually lose weight more quickly. Now, when this uh, study was published, uh, a a number of news hubs picked it up, as as they often do. You have these uh, science or health reporters who specialize in this, and they, they read through these various studies, etc. So one, one, so various news hubs like the Huffington Post or Modern Healthcare, they, they published uh, pieces or news articles on this particular study. And, it, and, it's, and who, wouldn't, who wouldn't want to report that? It's, it's good news. In fact, it's, it's incredible news, the idea that, hey, if I just eat dark chocolate while I'm dieting, I'll lose weight more quickly. But of course... It's actually not true. It's incredible news in the sense that it's truly incredible. It's too good to be true because, uh, in fact, is not true. And it turns out, and this is what's the, what I want you to see, it turns out that the Institute of Diet and Health in Germany is actually just a website, nothing more, no actual institute. And the, the health researcher who wrote this study is actually not even a real scientist. 
He's a science journalist. And in fact, the whole purpose of the study was not to actually conduct a real study about dieting. The goal, rather, was to test health reporters to see if they could distinguish between a science story that was for real and one that was fake. And in many cases, they simply couldn't. In fact, the author, the actual author himself, like I said, he's a science journalist himself. His name is John Bohannon. And he was part of a team of, of, of what you call gonzo journalists, and, and as well as a, a doc, some doctors and scientists. And they wanted to, listen to this, they wanted to demonstrate, quote, demonstrate just how easy it is to turn bad science into big headlines. That's interesting. They wanted to demonstrate just how easy it is to turn bad science into big headlines. And another author was discussing this particular incident, this, this uh, sort of experiment that this science journalist did. And he, he said, quote, the hoaxers, that is, that is uh, Bohannon and his team of journalists and, and researchers, he says, the hoaxers never thought they'd get as far as they did. They just assumed that reporters who don't have science, you know, don't have any sort of scientific background or knowledge would discover that the faked study was laughably flimsy once they had reached out to a real scientist. But they were wrong. They were completely wrong. In fact, nobody actually tried to vet the story with the actual scientists. And uh, the hoaxers, they, they write this. They said the key is to exploit journalists' incredible laziness. If you lay out the information in, in just the right way, you can shape the story that emerges in the media almost like you were writing the story yourself. So, so obviously the point here, so when it comes to dieting, you know, don't believe everything you read in the news. And that's, that's an obvious, that's a given. Most of us are like, yeah, that's, that's really no surprise. But of course, that's, that's dieting. What about something like disease? What about something like a coronavirus, right? What about the, our current uh, situation, our current crisis? Well, if you remember, um, when, the pan when the coronavirus um, pandemic first started, there were, uh, uh, there were a few models that made the news, and those models were responsible, on the whole, they were responsible for the government, governments worldwide, implementing various policies, implementing the stay-at-home orders, the lockdown orders. Uh, there was one of those models was the, was the Imperial College London model, led by Professor Neil Ferguson. The other model was uh, from Washington State, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. And both of these models, at least as was generally reported, they, they projected a very grim picture. And again, these were the models and scientists that, most, that were mostly heard about. But what's interesting is that there were other models, a number of other models, and there were a number of other scientists. Other leading scientists actually said very differently. For example, in, at Stanford, there was a biophysicist and, an, and a Nobel laureate. Uh, Michael Levitt was his name. He came to very different, far less alarming conclusions. In fact, a, a, a fellow Stanford professor, a man by the name of John Ioannidis, uh, a really interesting guy. Ioannidis um, is, uh, get this, he's a professor of medicine and epidemiology and biomedical data science and statistics. <laughs> And, he is, and he's especially important because he himself has actually made a career of finding holes, often gaping holes, in poorly done medical research. 
And early on in the pandemic, Ioannidis strongly cautioned fellow scientists against a, what he calls, a bandwagon effect among researchers. That is to say, the temptation among scientists and researchers to jump all on the same bandwagon out of fear of being excluded, but rather to discuss these matters uh, vigorously, to disagree among themselves and talk about issues. Now, so if, think about this. If there really were world-class scientists who were disagreeing about this, why didn't you and I hear about that? I mean, did you know that? On the whole, I don't think we did. So couldn't the news media have reported both or more? Couldn't they have engaged in debate? Couldn't they have said, well, some scientists say this. Some models say this. They could have, but they didn't. And, and the question is obviously, why? Why is that? It just seems like all of us, from regardless of our political perspective, we often feel like there's just something going on in the press. There's always distortion. There's always bias. There's always some sort of spin. And, and it makes us wonder why. Why is that? And, I, and we're going to begin to look at that uh, this, this morning as we look at Revelation. Um, so we, we, what we want to do again is this morning is to ask the question, how are we to think about the news media from a Christian perspective. And I, again, I want to do that using the book of Revelation. Now let me kind of just preface my comments here by just sort of introducing Revelation to you. Revelation is a word to the church about how it is to relate to the world. Okay, now other New Testament uh, books are different. For example, the Gospels or Paul's letters are basically intramural. They're about how God's people are to engage with one another, to love one another, to care for one another, to interact, to, to be uh, a different community than the world. But, but Revelation, like 1 Peter, Revelation is about how the church is to relate to the world. It's about, it gives us a way of seeing the world. It gives us what we, what we might call a world view. Now, uh, in, in, in it does so, it, does, it gives us a worldview using a genre that we are, on the whole, quite unfamiliar with. When I say genre, I'm referring to a way of, uh, a certain way of writing, a certain way of communicating. Think of genres of tragedy or comedy or satire, allegory or parable. There's a certain genre that we no longer use today but that genre is often called apocalyptic. And let me explain how this works, okay? It is a genre that describes our world using powerful symbols that make up a scene or a story. Does that make sense? That, that this genre, it's, 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 it's a way of describing the world around us using powerful symbols that that together make up a scene or a story. Now, these, what's important is that these symbols and stories are intended to be understood by a key, you know, like a, a legend, if you will. Think of a map and how a map has a legend on it, and you can tell the, what the symbols mean using the legend or using the key. And in, 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 in that sense, revelation can be unlocked by a key, if you have that key, okay? And in, in, in a certain sense, uh, Revelation then functions like a political cartoon. How many of you, you see uh, online and the various um, 
various news hubs, you see these political cartoons, and they're very simple, and they're very powerful. They're very effective because they use symbols to, to, and, and a storyline or a scene to communicate something very powerful, to make some sort of commentary politically or socially shaping how we see the world. And that is, that is almost exactly what the book of Revelation is about. Of course, whereas the cartoons that we'll see on the news, the political cartoons that we'll see on the news, have a certain levity to them, in Revelation, there's far more gravity far more gravity. So the revelation is what you might call a very serious political cartoon. And again, the question is, though, what is the key? How do, we, how do we unlock these symbols and stories in Revelation? Well, the key, overwhelmingly, is the Old Testament scriptures. And what I want to do this morning is, is lay out that key for us. I'm going to lay out that key, and I want to begin to describe, you know, move into Revelation 13 is what we're going to look at. The section of Revelation 12, 13, 14, and 15 is all, all one, and we're going, to, we're going to look primarily at chapter 13. But in order to do that, I want to just simply lay out the, 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 the key in order to understand the, uh, the actual text itself. So again, this key enables simple symbols to have a deep significance. Those of you, those of you who've, re- who've watched the, the Star Wars movies, or perhaps you, you're a Star Trek fan, uh, you know that within those, those universes, within those created worlds, there are all manner of symbols that have a, a meaning to them. For example, think of, think of the Lord of the Rings, and you think of the Ring of Power. You see the ring in the, in, in the, in the, in the movies, and you know, it's not just a ring, but there's a whole narrative, a whole significance associated with that ring. Or think of a lightsaber or an infinity stone uh, Think of the, from the Marvel comic universe. Or think of the USS Enterprise. And the way that the Enterprise represents, it's not just a, a ship, it's not just a, a spacecraft. There's something about the Enterprise uh, and the music starts playing that, that communicates a significance. It's sort of the, the best of human ingenuity, the best of human technology. And it has significant, actually, social and political um, power to it. So these symbols are inseparable from a larger story. They evoke a whole universe of narrative and meaning, and that's what makes them so powerful, because there's a simplicity to it. It's just a ring, and yet there's a significance to it that, is, that far transcends and, 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 and it can and enable us to, sort of to, to, to deploy that and use it in the world in a very effective way. So, so, so again, the key here is the, is, uh, the Old Testament scriptures that will inform or tell us what these symbols mean. Now, let, me just, let me just walk through some of the key, what I'm going to call the, the key players or key parties and the key places of, of the text that we're about to read. And again, I'm going to spend most of the day just, just outlining just the actual key, these, what the, the meaning of the key, and then probably next week we'll discuss the, 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 the actual significance for the news media. But I think this is very worthwhile. Let's, let's, jump, let's jump into this. <clears throat> so the key players. So we're going to see, if you were to read through Revelation 12, 13, 14, and 15, the, the first thing that you would be confronted with is a woman. A woman, a woman, and uh, who, a woman who is about to give birth. So I'll, we would say this: a woman and her infant son. Now, in the ancient uh, world of the Old Testament, 
a woman, an adult female, was marked by two things. There were two primary associations for a woman. First is that she be loyal, that she be loyal, that she be faithful. That was seen, seeing a woman as a wife. That was her primary role, that she was seen to be loyal or faithful. So this the symbol is a symbol of loyalty or intended loyalty and, and fidelity. Not, but not only was she to be loyal, she was to be life-giving. That is to say, she was understood as one who had the capacity to bear and give life. So a woman, in the, generically speaking, in the Old Testament symbolic world, was to be a loyal life-bearer. Or you might say someone marked by two things, fidelity and fertility. In fact, you see that in the very, the very first woman, the very first woman uh, in the Old Testament, Eve. Her name, Eve, means life or life-giving. And that's what Adam, and Adam names her. He says, you will be the mother of all the living. So this notion of a woman, again, the symbol of a woman has to do with uh, uh, fidelity and fertility. Now, the child that she has, of course, she has a child, is a newborn son, and the, the symbolism of a newborn child, that again, we can relate to this fairly easily, that I think of my own family, we just had a newborn uh, son, and a newborn son is representative of the idea of hope, of promise. And not just promise generically or hope generically, but promise of a new day, of a new order, of a new era. It's the promise of provision, and peace, when you have a child, you know in the ancient world that you would be taken care of. And so it's this notion of provision of peace, but again, not just privately in the domestic level. Here, there's clearly a significance of political and, and even uh, cosmic peace. So the notion here of a woman and her son, a newborn son, uh, is, is communicating this idea of, on the, for the woman, of uh, a, a fidelity to someone as we'll see, a fertility, and then with the sun, a future, a promising future, an era of unprecedented peace, of, of order and life. Okay, now, but along with the, the symbols of a woman and a sun, we have the symbols of a serpent or a dragon. It's called both. In fact, in, in, uh, in um, Greek, you can certainly have distinct words for these, these uh, creatures, but the, 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 the Greek dracon, where we get the word dragon, is actually best translated reptile. So, um, so you see, sometimes you'll see in the story here, it's a dragon, other times a serpent, and it's the same creature, because just in, in that ancient, in the ancient way of thinking, that, that there wasn't a significant difference. It was, there was a, a reptile. But, but what, is the, what is the symbolic significance of a serpent or a reptile? Well, in the ancient world, snakes, simply because of their movement, were regarded as symbols of unpredictability. Of a, of a slyness and really of a deceptiveness. So the serpent represents, or the dragon represents the notion of that which is that which is unpredictable, that which is deceptive, that which is actually not real, not to be trusted, that which is counterfeit. So you have again, we have the, the, the first, the sign of a woman, the sign of her infant son. The sign of a serpent, and now the symbol of, of beasts. We're going to see several beasts in Revelation 
13. And it's often translated beast. Another translation actually that would be more familiar to us would be a wild animal. Here, beast doesn't mean some sort of um, you know, mutant, uh, mutant or mutated creature that's just some sort of weird. I mean, these are strange creatures for sure. They have multiple heads, we're going to see. But these, these beasts are these, uh, mu- uh, are these um, are best translated again as a wild animal in the sense that it's powerful incredibly powerful. That's the primary connotation of a, of, a, of a beast. Here, again, when I say a wild animal, I mean in contrast to any animal that can be domesticated. That's very important. That in, in the symbolic world, these are animals that, again, they're powerful and they are predatorial. That is to say, they're, they're hunters and they're hungry and, and, as, and as creatures, they are in, in, they're inhuman in the sense they're not human, but it's their inhumanness that makes them inhumane. Are you with me? There's a certain ruthlessness uh, that you don't, you don't mess around with a wild animal. You, you're out hiking somewhere, you come across a bear, you come across uh, some sort of a, a wild cat or something, you, you realize you don't, you don't wait around and sort of rationalize and talk with and try to you know, play and, uh, with with a wild animal. So these beasts are seen as, again, as powerful, as predatorial, as beyond domestication, as refusing, this is really important, refusing to submit. Okay, so whatever, whatever these, these, these um, symbols are symbols of, it's important to understand that they are portraying as an entity that refuses to submit to any sort of external authority. And therefore, it's very unpredictable. These beasts will never be a pet, right? Sometimes we've, we've seen in Hollywood these uh, stories of a teenager or a young uh, a kid who has a pet dragon or has a pet, um, you know, a pet bear or something like that. We, we love it because we think, wouldn't, it, wouldn't that be cool? But of course, we all know it's Hollywood because the, by nature, a wild animal is that which cannot be domesticated. And so the point of these wild beasts is that they are incredibly impressive and incredibly, you know, petrifying. They're, they're, they're terrifying. They're awesome in a way that uh, they, 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 can, they, are, they are overwhelming in their power. It makes us sort of respect them, but it also makes us fear them. Now, these beasts, we're going to see, have horns and heads and crowns. And those three ideas of horn, head, and crown all communicate the notion of the head, communicates, I'm sorry, the horn communicates the notion of power, the idea of influence. A horn is a, way, is, is a primary way in which a wild animal can, can uh, use its power on, uh, you know, to fight or to get its way. So a horn stands for power. A head stands for the idea of position, the idea of actual title, the notion of, um, of some sort of role. And then you have the idea of a crown. And of course, a crown is the idea of permission. It's the idea of legitimacy, of warrant. To have a crown on a head is the, note, is the idea that somehow the power that one has is, is uh, at least um, um, presented as legitimate. Whether it really is or not is another question. So again, we, we see in this sort of symbolic universe, we have a woman and a son. We have a serpent or a dragon. We have beasts. And then finally, we have a lamb, a lamb. And in the ancient world, especially the Old Testament Jewish context, a lamb was first of all pure, seen as pure. 
It was seen as when a lamb, in the cultic context here, when a lamb was brought as a sacrifice, it was unblemished. It was, it was without um, any impurity, if you will. So a lamb was pure, but then also a lamb was plain. A lamb was just a lamb. There's nothing, there's nothing glorious, there's nothing regal, there's nothing special about a lamb. There's something that's very actually uh, plain or very, uh, un, just very ordinary, very unsophisticated about a lamb. It's pure, it's plain, and it is powerless, or at least seemingly powerless. Okay, that's what a lamb is. It's very vulnerable. It's this very easily, again, we think about the lamb in respect to the beast's and we can imagine, wow, what's the, what's, how are the, that's, in that symbolic world, how are a lamb and a beast going to get along? And then finally, so it's pure, it's plain, it's seemingly powerless, and lamb, uh, finally a lamb is seen as a substitute, or as a proxy, if you will. It's seen as, as, a, as one who, as, as, a, as a, an occultic context, it's what actually is sacrificed in the place of something else. And of course, in the world of Revelation, in the Old Testament, a lamb was seen primarily in terms of, or in relation to the Passover. If you know the Exodus story, you know that it was a lamb that was slain, then its blood placed on the doors of the, the Israelites' uh, homes to, so that when the, the death angel passes over, their, their firstborn son would be, um, would be kept safe. So those are the key, the key, if you will, the key players or parties in, in, the, in these chapters of Revelation. But there's also the key places, key places, that, that places here in Revelation have a, have a symbolic significance. For example, the sea. The sea, the sea here in, in, the, in the ancient world was understood to be a place of chaos and confusion. It was, it was a way of describing very cold and unforgiving, unfeeling forces in our world that are far greater than we are. It, was, it stood for that which was forceful and foreign, that which was disorderly and distant. It was all communicated in the notion of the sea, with waves pounding, and it's just a, a very cold, unsympathetic um, representation of the forces of uh, around us that are much bigger and simply have no concern for us. So again, the sea stands for chaos and confusion. The earth, we're going to see the, the, this idea of the earth or the soil, and the earth is representative of that which is dependent. It represents the idea of weakness, of limitation, of something that passes. We think of the Old Testament phrase, feet of clay. The idea is that clay here, dirt, soil, has the notion of that which is frail, that which is weak. But, but the earth also has the connotation of that which is familiar, what's familiar to us, right? So this notion of earth as dependent, uh, as familiar, uh, is, is basically what captures frail, frail yet familiar is this notion of the earth. And finally, the, 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 the other key place, of course, is heaven. And heaven stands for that which is eternal, for that which is enduring, for that which lasts. Heaven is, 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 to, is um, associated with that which is final and forever. And not just final, but that which is, you might say, for sure. It's for real. It's, again, it's in contrast to the earth, which is passing. That which is in heaven is seen as essential and everlasting. And then finally, just a, uh, one or two other uh, uh, symbolic um, um, parts of here is, that is some of the, n- the numbers. That in, in Revelation 7, or sometimes 10, 7 is symbolic for the idea of completion, 
of fullness, of, of, of integrity, uh, of, of this notion of it's all there in its right place. It's, that's, it's, it's what stands behind the idea of a week. You have seven days, and seven days make up a week. So that seven stands for the number of completion. And therefore, six, six as a number, stands for the number of incompletion or of counterfeit. If seven is the, is the number of integrity and wholeness, Six is the number of not almost there, but deceptively not there. And we'll see that number six, the, the, the threefold 666, as representing this idea of counterfeit. And then, uh, then finally, you have this idea of, 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 the, of 144. And we'll, we'll actually, I'm going to save that for later because it's not going to um, pinge directly on our, on our, on our discussion uh, um, for the rest of our time here. So the final thing I would want to mention is the idea of hearing. In, in, this, in chapter 13, we see the importance of hearing. And to be one who hears in the Old Testament and in the symbolic world is to be one who's open to change. It's to be one who's open to correction. It's to be one who's open to, to actually growing. And then so we'll see this phrase, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And it causes us, it makes us step back and say, you know what, do I actually want to listen? Do I want to grow? Do I want to change? Do I want to hear voices that are different and opposing from my own. And of course, that's going to have a lot to do as we, ta- as we apply this to the, to, to, uh, to specifically to the news media. So what I want to do now is I want to just take a little bit of time. I'm going to read um, the chapter 13, and we'll, just begin, and we'll begin to discuss some, uh, some of uh, what's going on here, and we'll pick up the rest of it um, in, um, uh, ne- next Sunday. So let's, um, let's see, let's... Uh, let's let me read uh, uh, through this section. You know, actually, I think what I'm going to do is, we're, I think we're gonna cl- we'll, close, we'll close out today just with the symbolic world, and we'll move on to actually discuss chapter 13 next week. But I hope, what I would love for you to do is, is take this week and read through chapters 12, 13, and 14, um, and begin to take the, the key that I've given you and see if you can begin to make sense of this very powerful uh, genre of apocalyptic. This is a, a genre, the book of Revelation has been the lifeblood of persecuted Christians for the last two millennia. These symbols have helped Christians stand up to the powers of their day, powers that like beasts threatened to destroy them, uh, uh, um, powers that pretended like there was, they were totally unaccountable. And in this symbolic world, once we get into it, once you begin to understand, once you have the key and you can unlock it, you begin to realize that, oh my goodness, that uh, so many of the institutions that we live in today match this. And it's going to equip you. It's going to reduce fear. It's going to increase courage. And it's going to give you a peace. It's going to give you a wisdom. It's going to give you a perseverance. And that's, that's what we're after, especially during this time. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and close our time. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we, um, we are amazed at the riches, the symbolic significance of your word. Lord, and just to begin to touch on the book of Revelation like we have this morning. Father, it's really, um, it's very, it's whetted our appetites to, to think more fully about the world that we live in. Lord, uh, all around us are forces at play, institutions of, 
uh, of media, social media. We think of news media. Father, we think of Hollywood. We think of uh, just that we live in a world drowning in images of all kinds, images that, that in every way seek to impress upon us a certain view of the world, a certain reality. And Lord, we pray that these symbols that we read of in Revelation would overpower those symbols, that these images here would be the images that we live by. Father, an image of a child born who would bring a new order. Father, an image of a woman, Father, in relationship to, to one who, uh, 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 to whom she submits, one who is faithful, one who is loyal. Oh, Lord God, what a, what a beautiful picture of the church. Oh, Lord God, I pray that, um, that you would help us, Lord, to, to gather together to discuss this text, Lord, to think about these symbols. And Lord, in a, especially in a time when there is so much divide, so much division, from when our culture is so polarized, Lord, I pray that we would, we would wrestle with these symbols in a way that brings real unity, real clarity to your church, to your people, and that frees us from fear and mobilizes us to, to love and to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.